Well, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm glad to be with you today. Uh, we are inviting our young people to Children's Church. They'll be learning about uh, worship and preparing to return and re-enter. Um, we are moving through a sermon series in the book of Revelation. Uh, we are taking uh, uh, the entire book in 50 sections. Six days of the week we're reading one. We have a blog post online. If you uh, have been following along, it's so much the better. Great. Uh, glad to have you on this journey. If you haven't been, it's not too late to get on board. Um, you know, sometimes when people jump on an activity, when it becomes popular, they're bandwagon. We accuse them of bandwagon people. But I am inviting you to get on the bandwagon, the Revelation bandwagon. We're moving towards some uh, great, a great, great ending. Uh, so if you haven't jumped on so far, you can, you've been, you know, perhaps uh, listening to sermons, you, you kind of know the overall scope. Jump on and join us in these final two weeks as we move towards Easter. We'll be reading through um, some of the most significant chapters of the Bible as we close out the book of Revelation, so uh, jump on. You'll also hear me at times today refer to certain uh, things on the blog. I'll do my best to explain them, um, but one of the advantages of this is that those people who want a more in-depth look at a, a complicated and challenging book, um, that's all there, uh, and we'll, we'll refer to it, but it gives us a little freedom here in our time together to look at some of the big themes and big uh, topics without getting too uh, crushed by the details. So, um, we will read uh, from Revelation 17, chap uh, chapter 17, verse 15, and we'll continue with 18, verse 8. And I recognize some of this may seem foreign at first. Hopefully, uh, we'll begin to make sense of it fairly quickly. Chapter 17, verse 15. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw, where the prostitute is seated, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they, are the they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you partake in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back, as she herself has paid back others. And repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, 
So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. This is the word of the Lord. We are in the, uh, I believe, the last section of the book of Revelation. We started with uh, letters to churches, seven churches in Asia Minor, and the prophet brought a word of uh, encouragement and correction to them. And then we moved to a a heavenly vision in which we saw that uh, Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, is unopening the scroll of history and guiding and directing events for His purposes We moved through four series of judgments, all in sets of seven, that showed that God was shaking the earth as the the church was being built up. And there was a conflict we saw between the church and the dragon, a, a spiritual war. In this final section, the drama of Revelation is centered around two contrasting images. There are two cities represented by two characters. On one hand, there is the city of Babylon. We see the reference to that today. Quite a bit of time is taken in this chapter and the next, referencing the city of Babylon. The second city that also is referenced in this section is the New Jerusalem. While ultimately Babylon falls, Jerusalem is established. In the climactic scene of the book of Revelation, the New Jerusalem comes down from heaven It is established forever. There's a contrast between the two, and there are two contrasting images given for them. On one hand, the New Jerusalem, when we meet her, is pictured as the bride of Christ. And on the other hand, the picture of Babylon was portrayed as an alluring but destructive prostitute. Now, these are both symbols, they are images, and they are packed with emotion and power. They are also evocative for us. Now, at their best, they stir feelings and they push passions. Uh, For the ancient world as well as the modern world, these images were uh, full of significance and they stirred feelings and emotions. Today we're looking at Babylon, who is associated with a great city and who is pictured as a prostitute. I want to pause for a second and recognize the complexity of the imagery here. Prostitution was in the ancient world as well as a modern world, a plague on society that brought harm to society and destruction to those who are involved. Probably in the modern world, maybe even more than the ancient world, we are aware of uh, the deep and lasting harm caused by the institution of prostitution, not only uh, to those uh, uh, men that are involved, but also to the women, not only to those that are buying, but to those that are selling. A greater awareness, I think, of the circumstances that might drive someone to prostitution And a deep awareness that in many parts of the world, prostitution of uh, young and old men and women is often such that it's associated with human trafficking. Many involved in this are themselves being destroyed even as they've been either coerced 
manipulated or forced into a dreadful practice. We recognize these things and uh, recognize the complexity of the biblical teaching on the topic as uh, many other places we are told of how the gospel of grace in the Lord Jesus came powerfully to those that were involved in deep sexual sin. Uh, the the uh, New Testament tells us that both John the Baptist as well as Jesus had ministries in which many were coming out of prostitution into faith and the gospel finding renewal and grace and healing. But what's happening here is this image of the prostitute is being used as a depiction of the city of Babylon which in the scriptures is representative of the human institutions that are in rebellion against God. In uh, 410, uh, following the, the fall of Rome in 410 uh, AD, Augustine of Hippo, known often as St. Augustine, uh, wrote a, one of the most famous books in Christian history called The City of God. And in that book, he describes the reality that Bi the Bible shows us that in human experience, humans in their rebellion against God, are always building a city, establishing institutions and practices. And he says throughout all of history, humans are building up this thing that he calls the city of man. It's really a description of what here John sees in a description as Babylon. Babylon is, and, and this is very much what Augustine was thinking of, Babylon is the city of man. It represents human efforts in all of their ingenuity and cunning and power and all of their work together to build something that is at the same time attractive and destructive. Attractive and destructive. And as, as, uh, as uh, um, uh, Augustine would point out, what we see the contrast of the city of man is the city of God. We don't see the city of God now and its power and its majesty and its splendor in fact, right now, the city of God, which is, is uh, the Bible tells us, God's people who are gathering together to follow him, to live for his glory and for his purposes, right now they don't appear to be particularly attractive. They look weak. They, they're experiencing, in, in many ways, we hear this, they're experiencing the reality of being marginalized and pushed to the side. They feel small. The churches in the book of Revelation are... The, the, in a sense, tied into the city of God, but when people look at them, what they see is something small and weak and marginal and, and insignificant. What John is revealing here is he's, he's revealing that in the end, the city of God will be fully established, but that power and majesty, the alluring but destructive power of Babylon will fall. That's what's, that's what's being re revealed to us here. And there's a, there's a certain tension as we think about Babylon as the city of man. On one hand, in its, in its ultimate sense, it is timeless. It represents humanity. Joseph used the, this word earlier. He said the world. We talk about Babylon, we talk about the world or the city of man. We're talking about the same thing. We're describing how humans in their own collective power, in their rebellion with God, are building something. But in every particular age, Babylon takes a particular form. 
Though it is, in a sense, uh, uh, timeless, it is abstract, it is an archetype, we might say. For the people living in the first century in these seven churches of Asia Minor, the ones who were receiving John's letter, when they they held up the template of the city of, of man, when they held up Babylon and looked through it, it wasn't hard for them to see the imperial structure of Rome that was dominating every section of their life. There's an interplay, if you've been reading the blog, you would recognize a certain interplay, even in the book of Revelation, where on one hand, Babylon, the city of man, is timeless, right? It represents all institutions everywhere, all empires, all gatherings of humans, the world in all its power and splendor and corruption. But on the other hand, it looks an awful lot like the Roman Empire, at one point, we're told that this, uh, that this woman the, the, is called, ba- literally, the name is on her, Babylon the Great. She is, uh, it says, sitting on seven hills. We know that the, the ancient scholars referred to Rome as the city of the seven hills. And also, even here, we see this referenced her as being dressed in purple and scarlet. And we don't know how much to read into all of the details, but we know the, the Roman emperors wore, wore purple and their priests wore, wore scarlet. And we know when we read this final verse of chapter 17, 17, 18, verse 18, it says, This woman you saw, right? There's several images, symbols at once, is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. On one hand, we could say, well, yes, as an archetype in all time and places, the world has power and influence. But if you were to hold that up and look through it in the first century, you would say there is a city that has power over the dominion over all the kings on the earth. I think it's worth considering it for a second because if we can put ourselves in the shoes of those people in the first century to live Uh, to try to live faithfully as Christians in the midst of the Roman Empire meant that they were often confronted by a power that was incredibly attractive, incredibly compelling, and it looked all-powerful. That's really what the image is doing here. It's drawing us in. There's three things we're going to do as we just dive into the text a little bit more. We'll see the, the, the power the seductive power of Babylon. We'll see the fall of Babylon. And finally, we'll hear the call to come out of Babylon. And I realize there's a lot here, so I'm gonna have to kick in in, in hyperdrive to, to cover some of this stuff. What's the power of Babylon? Let me, let me go back just a little bit earlier in 17 and read to you what John sees when he first sees the image. Chapter 17, verse 4, and you don't have this, I'll just read it to you. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. On her head was written, Babylon the Great. When I saw her, I marveled. If you want to understand how the image is working, you have to hear John's response to it. Not all of these things he's describing immediately cause us to marvel, because we're different people in a different time. But, But when John saw this picture of Babylon the Great, he said, I marveled at her. And that would be the experience we have every time we are encountering the city of man. That's how it works. 
What John is saying, I think the immediate application for his first century church would have been, there's, it's inescapable for you, dear friends in Asia Minor, to not have times in which the power of the city of man embodied in their day through imperial Rome would have felt marvelous, would have felt overwhelming. Can you imagine what it would have felt like to go into one of the great buildings built in one of these cities or perhaps into Rome itself. The sense of power and majesty would have been very, very strong and very, very compelling. That's how, that's how Babylon works. And in, uh, if we look closer, we'll see that John tells us there's three kind of uh, mechanisms that will be used by Babylon in their influence. Verse 18, chapter 17, he says, uh, there is dominion. Babylon has dominion over the kings of the earth. There is a power there. When you saw the military might of Rome, when you, when you experience today in any sort of modern state the, pow, the military power on display, there are times where you think, that's overwhelming. There's a reason why totalitarian dictators do military parades. Right? They want their people to see that and to say, you know, who is like the beast? Who is like Babylon the Great? If you were in an ancient society and and a a legion of Roman soldiers marched in in perfect battle array with their uniforms all in step with their spears and their shields, it would have been a terrifying sight. Who can resist? That's the message. There's another arm, though. It's very, very different, and and each of these could be its own sermon. I'm I'm restraining myself here. Um, The second arm, however, is that there is a... a, um, power of, of sexual, uh, sexual compulsion. Uh, there's an alluring power here. Verse uh, 31, we see this reference many times. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. Again and again, there's these types of references here. Now on one hand, it is a, a common biblical way of describing uh, spiritual unfaithfulness through idolatry. That's certainly here. But most idolatrous practices in the ancient world, as well as today, were deeply embedded with sexual sin. The, the, the biblical view of sexual immorality is that it is a good gift for God's people in the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. It's meant to be covenanted together, giving all of themselves to one another. And it's, even that is bound up in the contrasting picture of the prostitute and the bride. I think, for again, for modern people, when we hear the term uh, prostitute, we may not immediately think of the alluring power of it. I think, I think for many modern people, it feels kind of uncomfortable. An actual prostitute on the street corners may be what we picture. But most of the ways in which the world reaches us through sexual immorality today is not through such a, a blatant or direct uh, uh, activity. We think about the way sexual immorality is, is offered to us online, in the privacy of our home, the seductive power of the ads that come up in the normal course of what we're doing online. They're powerful. They are, they are designed to draw you in. 
I was just hearing a report last week, you know, the, the drama with uh, TikTok going on right now. One of the complaints, I can't evaluate the truthfulness of myself, but one of the complaints that's been made is that they use an algorithm that directs people towards porn because there's money there. And it's particularly used, one of the complaints was it's used often even in the algorithms for underage people outside of China. There's a different algorithm being used when it's their own people, then they do a little differently. And again, I don't know exactly what TikTok is doing, but I'm telling you, most things online have algorithms that will take you places. If you don't feel something of the allure of these things, and it, it may be that you've actually accepted it all hook, line, and sinker. I mean, here it is, money, sex, and power, right there. I mean, that, that's what she brings. She has the power. She has, she, Babylon is bringing the enticement of sexual immorality. And then we see in, in, also in verse 3 that the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of, of her luxurious living. Let's apply it to our day for just a moment. John is telling us that behind the world we live in, there is an embodiment of the city of man, there is a worldliness that causes, as one theologian said, it causes godly things, things that are like God, to look weird and, and sin to look good. That's what, that's what Babylon is doing, that's how the world functions. And, and these three arms may hit each of us in different ways, money, sex, power. But let me just offer to you today that unless you feel some of the tension and the allure and the power, it may be that you have, you have grabbed it hook, line, and sinker, and you don't even know. If you were to ask a, an alcoholic, are they struggling with alcohol? If they were in a, a full-blown bender, they'd probably say No. <laughs> This is going great for me. I feel great. All right? At least in, until I get another drink. When you start to say no to anything in your life that has an addictive hold on you, then you will struggle. You ask someone in AA, are you struggling with alcohol? And they'll say, yes. <laughs> now I know. Now I know what it means to say no to something that was killing me. My hope and prayer, friends, and I think what John wants to reveal to us is the, the power of the struggle so that we can see, my goodness, this is where the battle is. We begin fighting. We begin recognizing there's something to resist. Unfortunately, uh, John also shows us the, the, the fall of Babylon. This is particularly important. You see, the way Revelation works is John is not only revealing spiritual truths about the present but he's revealing their end he's saying this is where it's going in both cases whether you're talking about new jerusalem or babylon it's really important he would say to those in in the first century and their in their small struggling churches you may feel now like you're in something really small and marginalized but as you walk with jesus you're moving towards a glorious city that will last forever it extends to all people and places and times. You are moving to the eternal city, the true eternal city. 
In the same way, he would say that you who feel the overpowering weight of the seduction and allure of Babylon in their context or in ours, that is hollow and it's going to fall. That's the end of it. He says, what you see now is Babylon the great in her splendor, but know where it's going. It's not only attractive, it's destructive. We see Babylon is in, in there, uh, and all of these things, just bringing destruction to people around them. In particular, to those who would resist. Uh, we're told that in, earlier in chapter 17 that Babylon is drunk with the blood of the saints. Those who resist feel the crushing power of the institutional presence of the world. But also, I mean, it, you know, far and wide, these things bring destruction. I think that's why, uh, that's why John found in, in this image, why he found this, this symbol of the prostitute to be so compelling. It brings death. It is alluring, seductive, compelling, attractive on a certain level, but it brings death. Not only through disease, not only to cultural practices, but to those involved. In Bulgaria, we've, our, our missions partners have been working with a ministry called Daughters of Bulgaria, seeking to help uh, uh, Bulgarian women come out of a lifestyle of prostitution. And one of the things they, they, they point out quickly is it is absolutely destructive to those women who are involved. It kills them very quickly. Life expectancy for women in prostitution is measured in, in you know, on numbers of years is like two hands or one hand. Incredibly, incredibly terrible stuff. That's what Babylon does. It uses people, it churns them up, it spits them out. And yet John says it will fall. The prophetic device he uses is common in the Bible. It's not familiar to us. He presents to them a picture of Babylon fallen as if it's already happened. It's a, it's a picture of what will happen in the future, but we read it in verse 2, chapter 18. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. It's a picture of Babylon empty. A Babylon that's been, in which the, the vitality and life has been drained. It's a place where the birds can come, highlighting the uncleanliness of it, the, this, the demonic power of it. There's a common uh, image used in the Bible. We find very, very similar things in the Old Testament as well. But it's presented to people who, who have not yet experienced that reality. He says, put before you this image, the end of what it will be. All of those practices, our abuse of money, sex, and power, the enticing practices of the world that draw us in, they bring death. And the power of Babylon will fall. The interesting thing here is that uh, uh, the actual destruction of Babylon is pictured in ways that are reflective of the ancient city. The reason why the Bible uses Babylon as a picture, as a uh, sort of archetype of the city of man, is that it's such an incredibly powerful role in the Old Testament. 
It was Babylon that was used by God, but it was Babylon that conquered the southern kingdom of, of Judah, that captured Jerusalem, that destroyed the temple, that took the people into exile. The experience of living in exile in Babylon is described in the book of Daniel, where God's people hero heroically stand for truth in the midst of a fallen world. It's this image that's being drawn in, Babylon the Great. And the description of the fall of Babylon is actually a lot like the fall of Babylon in 539 A.D. The Medes and the Persians came storming up to the edge and, and we're told that they diverted the river, pretty genius engineering uh, feat, and the city that felt secure behind their moat was suddenly exposed and in a single night, Babylon the Great was overthrown. That seems to be the image here. And, and John's saying to us with this picture, the, the systems of power, seductive as they are, strong as they appear, eternal as they may seem to appear, they're really hollow and they're paper thin. The world powers that look dominant often fade in short order. Those of you old enough to grow up in the 80s remember the, the, from our perspective the fearsome power of the Soviet Union. When the wall fell, it fell quickly. The Third Reich presented itself as the beginning of a new millennium, a thousand year reign. It lasted for 13 years. Terrible harm and destruction, but when the end comes, it sometimes comes quickly. The point is highlighting that those things that seem and appear to be so dominating are actually hollow from within side. Well, the final feature we see in the fall of Babylon that's so interesting is that though God is directing it, the text says clearly it's God's judgment, there's a sense in which the fall of Babylon happens because evil turns on itself. Verse 16 the ten horns that you saw, they are the beast. They and the beast will hate the prostitute. We saw the beast as the embodiment of evil. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Yes, God is directing the purpose, but it's a really interesting lesson that evil consumes itself. The worldly spirit that looks to be so dominant and powerful has at its very core things that are self-consuming and self-destructive. That is the nature of Babylon. And so what do we do? Uh, in some ways, that's the point of it. I'll have to, again, move quickly. What do we do with Babylon? What's well, against this backdrop where we see both the seductive and, and attractive power of Babylon and the ultimate end of its hollow position? We hear in verse 14 the call for wise living and healthy separation. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. The lesson of Babylon is that those of us in exile will always have points of disconnect. Like Daniel, like Daniel uh, in the lion's den or his friends before the shiny golden image of Nebuchadnezzar, there are points and places of disconnect and places where there are things we must not do. 
Today in our, our missions class, we were hearing of uh, Japanese Christians and their many trials, and uh, uh, the, uh, we had a missionary from Japan who was describing the, the ongoing trials for Christians. He says it's not, uh, it's not uncommon where the, the, a Christian in a, in a workplace would find that everyone, all of the men in his office are following their boss to go to a gentleman's club. And we said they have to, they, they, they put their career in, in jeopardy when they say no. As outsiders, we look at that and say, oh, boy, that's something you shouldn't do. When it's not our culture, it's, it seems pretty obvious. Or we talked about the ways in which there was pressure in many of their uh, uh, financial institutions to just cook the books a little bit, to change the numbers to pad their own account. Everyone was doing it and saying, no, put your job in jeopardy. We see it in Japan if we're not Japanese. But where in your life are there things that are baked into the culture of what you were doing where it's not only making sin look good, making, uh, uh, making godliness look weird, but you're actually feeling compelled in. And friends, if you can't identify those places, it may be because you're so immersed in Babylon that you've lost the plot and the sight and the vision of what's going on. There are places and things that we must not do and places where we must say no and we cannot participate. But the interesting thing about life in Babylon is, is not just those hard stops, but the practices that come before it. What, what, uh, what John sees here when he hears a voice in heaven calling out says, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. He says there's a, there's a, a necessary type of separation from the world that a Christian experiences and unless we engage in that separation, we'll, we, we will be just absolutely drawn in to things that we used to know were wrong or should be clear and obviously wrong. What does that look like? Well, the tension in this passage is often described by Christians as the call to be in the world, but not of it. Based on the prayer of Jesus in John 17 on his last night with the disciples, for Christians in first century Asia Minor, there was no option for them to literally leave the Roman Empire. There was nowhere to go. They were in it. Right? Sometimes we have temptations to go form our own little you know, you know, commune and escape everything. But that's not generally realistic. It doesn't fulfill our mission of being a witness for God's people. And the idea of leaving Babylon is not a geographic movement. It is an emotional, relational, connectional thing. Their call is to be present in the midst of their place, but not to be of it. And there are places where they need to separate. I'm going to leave you with that thought today. Where is it in your life, in your faithfulness to God, in, in, in where you live, in your neighborhood, in your work, in your school, in your relationships with other people, where is it perhaps that you have become so enmeshed in Babylon that your ability to think and see clearly is affected. I'm suspecting a lot of us are spending time in Babylon these days, so to speak. The, the institutions and the cultures around us, they're shaping us. The answers are not easy. 
There's not, there's not a legalistic set of rules that you do this and don't do that. But unless we're thinking carefully about our practices, we may find that we are so drawn into Babylon that we can no longer distinguish. And when the time comes to say no, we have no platform to stand on. In, in, the book of Dan, in the book of Daniel, the very first story is told of how these young Jewish boys living in Babylon learned to say no, first of all, to the meat and the wine that was offered at the mealtime practice. We're not sure exactly why they felt it necessary to do it. There's some hints in the Bible, but there's not exactly a clear command. But they understood, unless they had some measure of separation from the place in which they were living, they would be consumed and subsumed into it. Let me just ask you to consider how the practices of your life are shaping your view of reality. How is your time spent online, on social media, on television, impacting your view of the world? I'm not up here to say that I have an exact list of what you should watch and not watch or do and not do. I'm simply saying, unless you're asking the question, you're probably being swallowed up by it. How much is too much? How, how much time do you spend with the algorithm directing what you watch in short 20-second segments before it begins to reshape how you think and how you live? Where in your workplace or in your school do you find there are things that you simply say, I cannot do them, I cannot participate, I have to draw a line, I have to, in a sense, come out, I have to disengage somewhat from that system where I'll lose my ability to think clearly? Friends, the good news is when we come out of Babylon, we don't just go into the, to the, the empty wilderness, but we go to Jesus and we go to his church. The book of Hebrews reminds us this, that, that there are necessarily times in the Christian life where there are practices we must forsake and things we cannot participate in. The book of Hebrews describes this as going outside the city. It says there are times in your life where you will, you will have to take a stand that's unpopular that could cost you. You'll have to disengage from a practice that could feel like it threatens your career or your relationships or your standing. And it says you're going to have to go outside the gate of the city, so to speak. And it will be at times an experience of suffering. But the book of Hebrews says this, Jesus went outside the gate also. He went out so that through his life and death and the sacrifice of his own blood, Jesus would sanctify those who follow him. Jesus suffered outside the gate so that he would sanctify his people with his blood. Therefore, says the preacher, let us go out with him outside the camp, even if it means bearing the approach he endured. And as we go there, we find that we're not alone, but we are with God's people. To go out from Babylon is to go into the bride, to move more deeply into the practices of prayer and fellowship and support, whereas God's people, we remind each other of the heavenly vision and call each other to greater faithfulness together, but ultimately with Jesus. Let's pray.